morning we're going to be in Mark 4, starting with verse 35. And we've really been blessed over the last several Sundays. Uh, the Synoptic Gospels, we're going through Mark, but I always add the other Gospels and the nuances that they throw in there. Uh, so we've been blessed by a plethora of parables and certainly post-ministry uh, service responses as a result of hearing those parables. And today we're going to look at a boat ride. The disciples, I wasn't there, but I'm just going to surmise what they might have been thinking. Hey, isn't ministry great? The Lord feeds us. The Lord heals us. Now we're going to be chilling on the Sea of Galilee, going across to the other side. This is great. And they don't know that there's a storm coming. Of course, the Lord does. And he knows the storm is coming. And he needs the disciples to experience a testing of their faith. Uh, and it's true with us as well. You know, we hear the word, we get fed well at Calvary Chapel. It's all about the word. Every event, there's the word, there's prayer, there's fellowship. But there's going to be times that we're going to be tested too. It's just natural. And if you look at any great profession, there's a, a difference. You know, there's a, a, an exchange between the classroom and the field, right? You go to boot camp and then you go into battle. Big difference. You're in the police academy, you go into the street, people are very different. You're, uh, you go to med school, and you actually deal with real-life patients with real-life problems. Right? So if you look at any notable profession, you will see this transition from the classroom to the field. Now, as, in addition to us in our maybe secular jobs experiencing this, uh, we also experience this as believers. Again, we have a, a point in time where our faith is tested and it's it stretched and it's a good thing. It builds our character. So this morning we're going to only look at a few verses, very powerful verses, and through this we're going to weave four stages of uh, testing trials through this. So we're going to jump in. I'll read the whole thing first and take it in blocks. Verse 35. It says, On the same day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us cross over to the other side. Now, when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. I love that. <laughs> and they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? So the first thing we look at, the first stage, is the problem, is the trial. Right? And God knows ahead of time that trials are coming our way. We don't have the ability you and I to see in the future, but, but he knows. He knows everything. In some, some instances, he will use, he will will some of those trials to strengthen us and test our faith. Other times, we'll go through trials based maybe by what other people do to us. Remember, there's a, a strong and sharp dichotomy between what God wills and what other people do that affect us. James tells us that God is not the author of evil, nor does he tempt any man. So if it's something that's evil that comes our way because of somebody else, it's not him. But he can use that situation and still strengthen us, making good out of any bad situation. Now, he knows that something has to come out of this. And he said to the disciples, what? 
He said, on the other side. You see, the disciples had their other side. And brothers and sisters, we also have our other sides through the storms of life. But the Lord knows. At times, he wholly or partially carries us. How many of us have read that footprints poem, you know, about the footprints in the sand? And uh, you see two sets and the person's recounting their walk with God, with the Lord. And there's a point in time where he went through his most difficult times and he said, I only saw one set of footprints. And he was upset with the Lord that he abandoned him. He says, you know, no, 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 you don't understand. At that time, those were my footprints. I carried you through the situation. So we can sadly, though, sometimes go it alone, needlessly suffer or allow bitterness to take hold where God is trying to teach us or strengthen us through it. Now, Matthew's gospel adds that the great tempest arose suddenly. It happened suddenly. Now, I digress. Wouldn't it be nice if we kind of got like a little calendar that God would send us every year and say, well, right about June, yours is coming. So you need to prepare. This is what you need to do. It just doesn't happen like that. Sometimes our storms arise suddenly as well. We don't get the details in advance. Life is not often like that. So the disciples had their suddenly and we have our suddenly. Now this is important because, you know, there are many who criticize the scripture. They read part of it and they have a problem with it. And they really don't know what they're talking about. They really haven't done the research. Some say, well, you know, it's, a, it's the Sea of Galilee. It's, it's surrounded by mountains. What's the big deal? How could there be these ferocious storms? If you actually go into a search engine and Google or use another search engine and look at the Sea of Galilee, you'll find that they still have those storms. Now, let me just give you a brief overview of the Sea of Galilee, which is more like a tremendous lake. It's about 200 feet deep, which really isn't deep for a body of water. It's about a third, the surface area is about a third the size of Middlesex County. So think about that. That's pretty big. It's uh, 100 and some odd uh, square miles, uh, and that's pretty big, okay? It's surrounded by mountains, high mountains, and up at the mountainous area, the air is cool and it's dry. Uh, Down by the water, the water absorbs the sun's energy, and there's moist, uh, warm air. So what happens is when these two land, or these two changes in pressures take place and changes in temperature, all of a sudden you have these amazing squalls. And I believe that some have actually photographed it. Now tomorrow we're going to have a low pressure system, we're going to have the sun moving in and rain will come. No, just kidding. I got carried away. (laughs) I kind of got into the whole meteorology thing. But the bottom line is, listen, it came on suddenly. The disciples had their suddenly. We also have our suddenlies. Verse 37. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. Wow. So the waves beat into the boat. The boat was filling with water. Matthew tells us, in addition, that the boat was covered with waves. This is some pretty heavy stuff. Remember, they didn't have the big steel, impressive ships that could really take a lot of abuse and keep everything steady. They had wooden boats. They weren't very big. And when the storms came, they knocked those boats all over the place. But brothers and sisters, let us compare these situations to our lives. You know, we go through some storms too. And we, in our lives, think sometimes this is so horrific that my demise is imminent. Many of you, if you've lived long enough, might have had a near-death experience. You might have thought this is the end. However, in reality, if you're sitting here and you're listening to what I'm saying, your demise hasn't occurred. So take heart when it comes to that. 
Verse 38. But he was in the stern asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? This is the second stage in this trial of testing. The response of the believer. Not a good one, is it? But if we're honest with ourselves, we don't always respond well either, do we? You know, I've, I've gotten past the immature stage of being a Christian where I, you know, said things about the children of Israel, said things about the disciples, because when I've gone through these things in my own lives, I realized sometimes I didn't act much differently than they did. So it's very easy to point the finger at somebody else until we go through it and we experience it and we say, oh, this is what it's like. He, they said this, Lord, number one, do you not care, too, that we are perishing? Remember, this statement can, contained two falsehoods, that A, God didn't care, and that B, they were perishing, because obviously Jesus said, we're going to get to the other side. In fairness to the disciples, what they were experiencing was real. And this morning, we experience things that are real as well. Maybe you've experienced a real storm this weekend. Maybe you know or you have an inkling that there's an impending storm this week that you may have to deal with. It's real. Perception is reality, as the phrase goes. And sometimes, really, it's, you can tweak it a little bit and, says, and say, perception is our reality. This is my reality. This is what I'm dealing with. And this morning, I'm glad you're here because God knows. And I have no doubt there's at least a handful of you that are going through something and that this sermon is ministering to you. It's just the words, the power of the word. The second thing, again, in fairness to the disciples, is that for experienced fishermen to be struggling, this had to be pretty bad. How many have ever gotten caught in a, maybe a mild storm on the water and you know, now the boat starts to rock and, and you, you get like a vertigo and uh, there's nausea, possible vomiting, uh, exhaustion, trying to fold up the sails and you know, all these things happen. It happens quickly and now you're scurrying and, and in your mind it's preservation of life. So this is real that they were experiencing. And here's an interesting thing as well. Jesus chose to be, he he divested himself of his omnipresence when he came to the earth, took the form of a man. So there were other little boats that he actually wasn't physically on the boat. So if the people on the boat that he was at were panicking, can you imagine how the other ones felt on the little boats, probably looking over at the main boat where Jesus was and wondering what was going to happen? So we look at their response, we put ourselves in their sandals or shoes, and now let's look at the truth of what God says. He says, we're going to go to the other side. Does God ever make a promise that he doesn't keep? No, of course not. There's some things that God actually constrains himself to not do, and one of them is to lie to go back on his word. What would it say about his character if we served a capricious God? Some of the uh, polytheistic pantheon today and, and back in the days of the Greeks and the Romans, they had very capricious gods. They were One day they liked you, one day they didn't. But that's not the true God. Right? He never makes a promise that he doesn't keep. And as Pastor Cliff said last Sunday, the best place to be is close to the Lord, is to be at his feet. And if he says, this is going to happen and you're at his feet, Okay, then it's going to come to pass. How many times have we gone through these types of situations and we panicked and we said some things and we're still here? And then we do it again and and we panic and he still loves us. Brothers and sisters, we serve a merciful and patient God and he uses us in spite of us. I mean, sometimes we have to sit back and say, why would God use me? 
You know, I am, I'm just so, gee, I just I can't control my feelings or my emotions. You know, all these things we get down on ourselves, but God can still use us. I'm going to get a little mileage out of Pastor Cliff's message last Sunday when his son was trying to help him with the toy rake, rake the leaves, and he was getting frustrated because he wanted to do it right. And God convicted him and said, Cliff, I use you. How many of us, to God, are those little kids with the toy rakes just getting a few leaves when he can just swoop them up with a snap of a finger, but he still uses us in spite of us. We serve an awesome God. So many great characteristics that he has. And similar to the disciples, we can also say insolent things towards God. Really what they said to him was insolent. You know, they, they accused him of not caring. Uh, and quite frankly, I think they were manipulating him in their prayers. You know, and we can do that too. Don't you care? We do that with each other, don't we? You don't love me. You don't care about me. If you cared about me, then you would... Here's my Santa Claus list, right? When we pray, sometimes that slips out because it's, our, it's a reflection of our heart. Lord, if you really cared, you can see I'm suffering right now and, and you pretty much guide him in what he needs to do to satisfy you. And that's, that's not true. Maybe the, the difficulty is something that we really need. It's got to break something that's very damaging inside of us. So the disciples, hey, Jesus was great when he was multiplying the loaves and the fish. He was great when he was healing the sick. And now all of a sudden they accuse him of, carrying, of having a character shift for the worse, really? You know, he was in the boat. And he's in the boat with us too. They, like we, act sometimes like God doesn't know, God doesn't care, or God doesn't understand. And again, all those, threes are, all those three are insulting. God doesn't know, he's omniscient. God doesn't care, God is love, right? God doesn't understand, again, he's omniscient, he knows all things. And sometimes we act as if, well, this is a unique situation. You know, mankind has been on the planet for several thousands of years, and, and we kind of say to God, you know, this is, you don't understand. Imagine starting that out with the Lord. Lord, you don't understand. This is a unique situation. No one else has experienced what I'm experiencing right now. We, get, we become deceived, even in our prayer life. How many times? I tell you what, I've had to, I'll raise my hand, I've had to apologize when things start, when finally they go where they need to go or where I think they need to go, I, I feel stupid. I feel like, I'm sorry, Lord, I shouldn't have doubted you. And you can see that literally in real time with the disciples as they walk with the Lord. You could see their repentance, their admissions, their uh, admission of, admitting of their own frailties. And we have to do that too. What I find humorous is the fact that Christ was asleep on a pillow and uh, I, I think it's funny because I'm kind of picturing him just, you know, he's very busy. You know, he does a lot of stuff and he's in this form of a man. And he's got to eat, he's got to sleep, he's got to rest. And he's probably looking to catch some Z's over in the stern, a little place on the boat where nobody else is and he's on this pillow. Probably real, like relaxing, getting that power nap going, you know, getting that HGH running through his system and repairing his body. And uh, he's on a pillow. Now, how many of you, times have you heard somebody brag, I could do that in my sleep? Now, we might have said that. We're so good at what we do, I could do that in my sleep. Well, I have to tell you, had the disciples not woken up Jesus, he had it all covered. He had their lives, their safety, the storm. He had it all in, in his sleep, had they not woken him up. That's a beautiful thing, isn't it? So top that. <laughs> also, the disciples' focus, their focus was off. Now, I've got to tell you, 
after 46 years, I really understand focus now. After 46 years about bragging about my eyesight, I now got these. <laughs> my wife picked them out. I call them Clark, Clark Kent glasses. She, she said that the hipsters wear this, so I, I don't know. I'm actually good. I can actually read the notes on the pulpit, but I just wanted to show you that I get focus after 46 years. But you could imagine if Jesus was asleep, the disciples come over to him, he's probably looking real peaceful, and they start shaking him. Right? Again, we weren't there, but we can almost imagine what was happening. They were shaking him, waking him, Lord, you got to get up, we're perishing, don't you care, These really bad things are happening. And you could almost see them taking their eyes off the Lord and saying, like in the movie, slow motion, the waves, you know, the wind, the water's filling the boat. But what are they doing? They're focusing on their circumstances and not focusing on the Lord. And brothers and sisters, we get ourselves in trouble all the time, 10 times out of 10, when we take our eyes off of the Lord and we fix them on our circumstances. I bet there were times as the disciples matured and things were happening, maybe casting out demons, maybe some, you know, who knows? Remember the Gadarenes? And it was, we are legion for we are many. We're going to cover that next Sunday. Uh, you know, 2000, who knows? I mean, all these horrible demons. Maybe they, they became more mature and wherever Jesus was, maybe they were scared and they just were like, I'm going to stay behind Jesus on this one. They focused on Jesus maybe and not the demons. But we do, we get ourselves in trouble every time when we take our eyes off of him and we fix them on our circumstances. And when you love somebody and you're maybe mentoring them and you show them and point that out, that you can see that in their life, don't they sometimes get mad at you? And they kind of snap at you because they don't want to hear it. It's too simplistic of an answer, but that's the true answer. And I just want to note something this morning because I think it's important. I always try to bring behaviorism and human physiology into the lesson so that we can understand the spirit, the mind, and the body. Fear is a big part of what we're talking about this morning. Fear. What is fear? Number one, it's an emotion. What does fear do to protect the organism? What fear does is it keeps us from danger and death. It's actually a good thing in its proper context. However, fear can be an aberration. It can be irrational. It can be persistent, and fear can lead to anger and rage and insta- because of a root of instability. When we start to worry about things, when we start to freak out about how we look at our lives and there's something we can't deal with, there's a problem we can't solve, feelings of instability, fear is covered by anger and rage because the organism does not want to feel like that. It doesn't want to think that it's unstable. It doesn't want to think that it's coming apart. So you find somebody who's a constant rager, at the flick of a switch, there's a fear issue at the root of that. There's an instability. There's an inability to solve problems. And the beautiful thing is when we know the Lord and we start to abide in his love, I'm going to get to that scripture at the end, what happens is that fear and that rage, they start to subside. It doesn't happen overnight. Maybe not, won't happen this year or next year. But eventually, as the more we walk with the Lord and abide in his love, that will start to subside and there'll be more function instead of dysfunction. There's more homeostasis in the whole organism than than instability. And we're going to revisit that. So verse 39, 
Last few verses. It says, Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Could you imagine how quickly that must have happened? Just, <laughs> they must have just been standing there, tired, exhausted, with water dripping down their faces and their hair soaking wet. The sun comes out, the clouds are gone, and everything's calm. And they're still trying to get their bearings from the vertigo. But all of a sudden, peace be still. Bing! Immediate serenity. I've talked about this with him healing people of the different diseases and fevers and physiologically how for us it takes time to go back to homeostasis. But with the Lord, everything done was done at a split second, real time, immediately. Like I said, I hope God's got some nice equipment. I just would like to get a glimpse back and see some of these things actually as they took place. So this is what's going on. Um, Verse 40, and he said to them, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, who can this be? That even the wind and the sea obey him. You know what I love? When we get a deeper understanding of the Lord. Isn't that amazing? We think we know the Lord. Maybe we've been walking with him for five or ten years. And then in the 11th year, we get another epiphany of a new understanding about the Lord. The disciples knew him. They worked with him. They ate with him. They, they, were, they listened to him. Their eyes were wide open like little children listening to everything he had to say. But all of a sudden, after this incident, how long were they walking with him? They understand a new thing. Who can this be? We thought we understood him before. And that's the beautiful thing. That's why the Bible is called the living word. The more we're into it, the more we read. We don't say, listen, I read the Bible a few times personally cover to cover. I don't say, well, I'm going to close the book, put it on my coffee table and put stuff on top of it because I'm done. No, I'm not done because I, every year, learn something new about my Lord and my Savior. And they just learned something new here. That wasn't in my notes. (laughs) Very exciting. So the third stage or the third trial of testing or the third stage in the trial of testing is the Lord's response. So we had the believer's response Now we have the Lord's response. What does he do? Number one, he rebukes the conditions that everybody was frightened about. Number two, he brings a a calm. Number three, he rebukes the disciples. And we're going to talk about that. Not mean, wonderful lesson. Certainly take an opportunity, what they went through, to teach them something through that. I don't know about you, but when I've been in my most difficult times of life, uh, the worst things that I think i got to tell you, they probably never came to pass. Maybe single digits, a small percentage of it. You start, your mind starts going. You get caught up in the vortex of your, of your storm, literally. You're in that, that storm, the wind, and the, everything's flying around. Like on Wizard of Oz, the, the cows are passing across the window, and the house is being lifted up. And, and we go through this thing, and we start to think all these thoughts, thoughts. And nine times out of ten, or or the majority of them, they don't come to pass. Now, if you've ever been through anxiety or panic disorder, that, that will lie to us too. We get caught up in that fear cycle. This is going to happen. That's going to happen. They're going to lock you away. You're going to die. You're going to... And you know what? It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. You just need some time. Let it subside. Some time with the Lord. Regroup, and you'll grow stronger through it. I love it too when it seems like all is lost in our lives. And, we, and God puts up his hands and he says, peace, be still. He doesn't let anything destroy us. Even in the situation with Job and Satan attacking Job, he limited Satan's power. He goes, no, don't go that far. No, don't do that. 
And Job went through some difficulties, but it didn't push him over the edge. God made sure of that. God does not want us to be destroyed. He wants us to grow. He wants us to mature. He wants us to experience that peace that surpasses all understanding. That's not natural peace. That's not when you're fighting with somebody in a relationship and you're both exhausted and you both calm down and, all right, it's peace right now. It's not what he's talking about. This is the, (laughs) so some of you experienced that. (laughs) This is the peace that surpasses all understanding. This is something that's not natural. This is a godly peace. This is a spiritual endeavor. And, And it's an awesome thing to experience. Now, similar to the disciples, at times, have we ever been convicted of having no faith? Hopefully that's more in the early stages of our, of our walk with the Lord. As we grow, we start to increase our faith. And it doesn't mean that even if the 10, 15, 20 years, we might be rebuked by the Lord for having little or no faith. Right? This is a, that's why it's called a walk. We're on a journey. We're on this side of eternity. We still deal with sin. We still deal with temptations, trials, pressures. We're not in the, in the uh, restored kingdom yet. We're still on this side. We're half, we're half spiritual you know, we're actually all, we're born-again believers, but we also are tied to these bodies of flesh and maybe some stinking ways of thinking, some stinking thinking I used to hear it called, you know? When I was a new believer, I remember the one guy teaching a class, new believers class, he goes, don't get caught up in that stinking thinking. We still do it, right? But just be careful of this. When we don't want to wait for God, and listen, none of, I don't like trials, I can be impatient, but be careful of the danger of turning to the world with its counsel and its connections because God's not doing it fast enough. You know what? And we do. Insolent. All right, Lord, I gave you a few days. Now it's my turn. Bad idea. Bad idea. Because the, the Lord will not compete with the world. You want the world? Have at it. Verses 40 and 41. If you, if you caught it, it said this, that Jesus asked the disciples why they were so fearful. And then it says they feared exceedingly, referring to Jesus. This is important. We've covered this with the word love. In English, it's love. In the Greek, there's four words that I know of in the Koine that speak about different types and levels of love. We spoke about see, how we, we say see. In the Greek, there's four or five, six words that have to do with sea. The, the Greek is a very expressive language. I don't think it's any accident that the Bible was written in the Koine Greek, that the whole Greek empire, they, they all understood this. If you were a Jew or a pagan or whoever you were, you understood Koine Greek. Pretty awesome stuff. Very easy to translate as well. So there's two words for fear. Now check this out. In verse 40, referring to the storm on the sea, the, the fear word is delas, which means a dread of dying type of fear. Now let's look at the other word in verse 40, 41, referring to Jesus, it's fabeo, completely different word. And that word is more, you can be translated into an awestruck reverence type of fear. Now this really clears things up, doesn't it? Because when I grew up, I grew up in a, a big denomination and, you know, I went through several churches in that denomination and I was terrified of God. Even as a little kid, I was scared to death. I actually, you know, would, I, I'd hide a Bible under my pillow. I'd have a crucifix. Like, it was just, it, it brought me to a point of no relationship with the Lord. And in my teen years and my 20s, I went, just did whatever I wanted because I thought, oh, I'm going to hell anyway. You know, there's no hope for me. So this is very important because we don't, we're not, we don't have dread for God. He's our father. 
You know, if we had a stable relationship with our our earthly father and no earthly father can match God, that you, you would have a reverence for your father, but you shouldn't have a terror or a dread fear for your father. And if you did, that's not God. And I think I brought that out in the Greek to English. We respect, we have reverence for the Lord, but we love him and he loves us. We can fear things in the world. We can uh, get off kilter at times, but never have that dread or terror feeling towards the living God. He is our creator father. Very important that that gets cleared up. Verse 41, they said, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? All I can say is amen. And for those of you that have come up recently to receive the Lord, he's your God. You know, he's the one. When you go through those storms, when you go through, when you're in that boat and it's filling up with water, he is the only one who has the power. And we have friends and we have family and we have people, who, other Christians that we love and, and they can be helpful, but it is only God that can clean up that mess. It's only God that can forgive us and not have his feelings hurt. You know, we hurt each other and, and it, it kind of becomes a thing. You know, we, we get funny in front of each other because we're still hurt or still this. But when it comes to God, when he forgives, he forgives. And he's the one, the only one, who has this power and the ability to fix the problems in your life. Now, it might not always be fixed the way we exactly want it to be fixed, but it's going to be fixed in the way that he chooses that's best if we're following him through that storm. So the fourth and final, right, the final stage here is, I'm going to say this twice, it's the believer's corrected response based on the Lord's response to the believer's fear response. Let me say that one more time. The fourth stage is the believer's, it's a second response here, because we had the, the believer's response in the second stage. So now we're in a fourth stage. This is the believer's corrected response based on the Lord's response to the believer's initial fear response. That's where we are now, and that's where we're going to close. I want to read to you Acts chapter 20, verse 22. I want to talk to you about a man who was in the world, highly educated, very successful in life, uh, met the Lord on the road to Damascus. His whole life changed. And his life went from being the king of his area and his field and, and going places in life to now, because of his newfound faith, rejection from his peers, rejection from his profession. And that's the Apostle Paul. And check out what he says, because he was going to die a horrible death. But he says this, This is towards the end of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20, verse 22. He says this, to comfort the believers. He says, and see, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. So the only thing God told him was that, like, you know, you want the three-month plan? He didn't get that. But what he was told was that chains and tribulation awaited him. Brothers and sisters, imagine if that was said to us. Do we have enough in the tank spiritually to deal with that? That's important because that's when it really has to start to come out, when we're going through that storm. Verse 24, I love this about him. I can't wait to meet him. It's a good thing eternity is so long because I'm going to be annoying. The Lord's going to say, sit down and relax. There's a lot of other people around here. (laughs) Verse 24, The Apostle Paul says, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race, the Christian walk, with joy 
and the mystery which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed now, I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. This must have been very tearful. They looked up to him. He was a, a real rags-to-riches spiritually success story. And, they, and they, they looked at Paul for strength. And he was leaving. You shall see my face no more. He knew what was going to happen to him. Therefore, I testify you to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Brothers and sisters, do we do that? Especially with our peers or other Christians, do we tell them the truth? Or are we afraid because in that peer group, they might make fun of me, they might ostracize me, they might say stuff about me on Facebook that I'm an extremist and all this kind of stuff. We have to not shun to declare the truth of the gospel of God. And we're going to be assailed. We're going to be made fun of. It's going to happen. But if you're doing it in the power of the Holy Spirit, you can have this testimony. Well, that's not very encouraging, but maybe not exactly, but you know what I'm saying. And and he goes on, but I'm just going to leave it there. Complete trust in God. God knows it all. We understand that he knows it all. He loves us and he hasn't forgotten us. That's where I want my faith to be. So why does he rebuke the disciples? A few reasons. Number one, too much is given, much is required. We, as, as they, have been given the wisdom of the ages. We've been given, given the mysteries of the kingdom revealed. We have a relationship with the ever-living God creator, the CEO of the entire universe. Focus and trust in him must supersede fear based on misfocus on circumstances. We have to know his character because we know him, because we have a relationship with him. Now, to the disciples, what was his promise to them? We're going to make it to the other side. And that was something they should have kept in the bank and held on to because they knew it was going to come to pass. To Israel, in Deuteronomy 31, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That was so powerful that in Hebrews 13, it's reiterated for the New Testament saints. Many of those promises he made to Israel, he still he feels about us as well. We're just from a different covenant. Hebrews 13, the number is transposed, but he says the same thing. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Sometimes in, in our biological families, we have stress, this stridency. We, we have difficulty. Sometimes with our maybe best friend that we grew up with, maybe Christian friend, maybe we've been hurt. And maybe for a time there's a separation. Maybe they leave us and it, it crushes us. That's painful. I know everybody here in some form or another has gone through something like that. But God says to us, I will never leave you nor forsake forsake you. That's a promise you can hold on to. Let's talk about fear again. Fear is contagious. I've studied a lot about warfare and battles over the years, and it's amazing how some armies were better equipped, better disciplined, more numbers, and they lost because of fear that swept through the camp like a virus, like a contagion. Maybe a shifting and and something that happened on the battlefield. The Battle of the Histospes was an interesting one in India. Um, And and all of a sudden, the army panics. And now they're, they're actually attacking each other. That's how bad fear is. An aberration of fear, not the good stuff that when a lion comes out, you go, hey, let me pet the nice kitty, you know? You should have fear when a lion comes out and go the other way, climb a tree or something. But the Lord was sleeping in the boat. And if he wasn't concerned, they shouldn't have been concerned. 
And three, fear leads to weakness, compromise, and it can be destructive in ministry and also spread like wildfire. That's important too. Any leader who's gripped by fear either needs to maybe take some time off and get right with the Lord, step down, or, or deal with that. Inordinate fear comes from a lack of receiving the understanding of God's love. Perfect love casts out all fear. And I've talked to you about this before. I, I like the kind of timeline, the visual, the fear-love continuum. The more we're in fear, the less we're receiving or we're acting on God's love. And they just, they just do that. It's, they're just inverse. Right? The more we receive of God's love, the more we're built up. We have that, you know, that spiritual you know, treasures. You know, we, we have that understanding and maturity in the tank. And we deal with a situation. The more we're in God's love, the less we're going to fear. It's a continuum. They can't both be up at the same time. If one's up, the other one's got to be down and vice versa. In the storms of life, the Lord is faithful, trustworthy, merciful, good. And he's there with us. I want to leave you with a powerful scripture before we close in prayer. How many of you are familiar with 1 John 4.18? It's pretty, pretty good stuff. It goes like this. There is no fear in love. Now that word is agape love, and we've talked about that, that higher echelon of love. There is no fear in love, in that divine love that we experience from God. But perfect love, or mature love, not an easy thing, casts out all fear. Remember the continuum we spoke about. Because fear involves torment or punishment. How many times have we lived it? And that's why Satan likes to isolate us, brothers and sisters. I have this discussion many times. Are you suffering? Do you have a, an addiction problem to anything? Do you have a, a trial or a pressure or a, a problem in a relationship or your marriage? Satan will, will try to isolate you and pick you off from the pack. And what happens when we're isolated, we're lied to, we're deceived. And you know what happens? This fear torments us. And then we think these things about God because, we're, again, we're in that whirlwind and vortex. And then we think that he's punishing us. Fear involves uh, torment, punishment. However, he who fears is not made perfect in love. But let me just give you this. He can be. She can be. So let me say this again. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear. As fear involves torment, he who fears is not made perfect in love. Memorize that and hide that in your heart, in your deepest, darkest, most difficult times. Abide in God's love. So we can be made complete in in God's love. We need to continue to focus on the Lord, not on our circumstances, because we know that God is with us in the storms of life. Let's pray.